Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 10, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Once again, for those of you who are, you know, addicted to overlong website earls, we've, we've got one for you, PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So today we welcome Thomas Christensen, we're going to call him TC, to the podcast. He's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Unreasonable Jesus. It's out on March 6th, which is just around the corner now. And TC, I'd love it if you could give everyone kind of a thumbnail sketch of who you are and what you do. Hey, Rick. I'm happy to be with you here on the podcast. Um, So as you said, most people call me TC. Uh, I live uh, just south of Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm on staff at a church here in Glen Burnie, uh, where Jesus is doing some very cool things, very grateful to be a part. Uh, I also work uh, at a couple institutions of higher learning around here where I do adjunct professor work. Um, but beyond that, uh, I love uh, writing. I love writing articles. Obviously, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, writing a book. Uh, I'm married. I've been married for uh, almost 19 years. I've got three kids uh, who keep me busy all day long. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm, I'm just a guy who's trying to eat a little healthier and a little bit more exercising. <laughs> so, uh, wow, we're at the almost at the end of the second month of 2018, and you're still hanging on to eating better and getting fitter. So way to go. You, you've you know, just, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm doing my best, yeah. You just outlasted like 90% of Americans right there. So uh, this week, gang, we're going to focus on uh, what I like to call mud puddles that line the path to Jesus. A mud puddle is uh, the stuff in the Bible that you're, you're reading along, you come up to it, and it really makes no sense. If you were to slow down and pay attention, you'd go, what the heck? What, why did he say? Why did Jesus say or do that? And adults, what adults do is when we come up to something like that, we just jump over it. We say something inside, something like, uh, well, that's Jesus for you. Um, but kids, when they come up to a mud puddle, they jump in the puddle. And since Jesus has called us to be like kids, what we do is we jump in the mud puddles, and we wallow around in there until, we, uh, until we've gotten some clarity about whatever that is. We don't jump over them. And so today, what we're going to talk about with TC is why Jesus left so many mud puddles for us to wallow around in. Jesus is a shocking person. I love how Peter Kreeft describes Jesus. His phrase to describe Jesus is a shocking wonder, and I absolutely love that. And he's shocking, for sure, unless we're not really paying attention to him. The other, the, I've said before on the podcast that my favorite quote of all time is from G.K. Chesterton, And it is, if you meet the Jesus of the Gospels, you must redefine what love is, or you won't be able to stand him. I just think that captures so much about why Jesus is the most electric person that's ever walked the earth. But you only understand that if if you slow down and pay attention to him. So today we're going to slow down and pay attention to Jesus through TC's new book, The Unreasonable Jesus. We're going to have a conversation about the journey that T.C. has been on in sort of embracing 
how unreasonable Jesus is and what that means for us in our everyday life. So, so TC, let's get started. Um, your book it, uh, focuses on the Sermon on the Mount and not the Beatitude portion of the Sermon on the Mount, just sort of this string of what you might call impossible standards <laughs> that Jesus lays out. He's kind of contrasting uh, the way that we as human beings typically live with the way those in the kingdom of God live. And he's contrasting these things, and and if we pay attention to them we, and we start to ask ourselves, uh, well, what does that mean and, and how can I live it, it quickly seems impossible for us to do these things. So just from a broad perspective, uh, why would Jesus begin his ministry? Because that's essentially what he's doing here. He's beginning his public ministry. Why would he begin his ministry with this, like, shotgun blast of impossible standards. Uh, what kind of conclusions did you draw from your immersion in the in the Sermon on the Mount? When, when we look at Jesus, you know, preaching and giving challenging messages, I mean, the first thing I think of is that Jesus himself told us, uh, as recorded by recorded by Luke in chapter four, he said. Um, you know, after after he um, deals with the temptation, and he comes out and he's doing a bunch of healing and, and casting out these demons, and people are flocking to him, and he tells the disciples, "We're not we're not going to stay here and keep doing that, but rather he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent." So, Rick, my thinking is that the reason Jesus, you know, as soon as he essentially has a big crowd for the first time, as far as we can tell, the reason he goes up on a mountainside and begins to to preach is that that's that's why he's here. He wants to uh, talk to people about the kingdom of God, uh, and so that's and it's fairly normal in this day and age. Uh, you know, when when Jesus is walking the earth, that uh, a rabbi is going to tell people how they should live their lives and, and kind of share perspective they should have. The one obviously main difference with Jesus is that re- rather than doing it with you know the most elite students of the religious schools and the best of the best of the best, is that he's willing to do it with anyone. Uh, and obviously, the other thing that makes him different is that his message and, and the things that he's telling us is uh, very different. Yeah, let's let's uh, t- talk about the kingdom of God just for a second. We've we've uh, explored what the kingdom of God is on this podcast before. I think it's interesting to go back to this for a second. I'm as you were talking, I was thinking about the other night. I lead a small group of young adults in my home every week. It's called Pursuing the Heart of Jesus, Not His Recipes. That's the name of the group, and. Uh, uh, the other night we were exploring in a creative way the the why so much of the new New Testament and the Gospels in particular refer to the name of Jesus. What's the big deal about his name? Why do we do stuff in his name? Why does his name have power? And it's a fascinating conversation with these young people. And and uh, one of the a, a new a new person in the group, super smart, whip smart young guy. Um, Said that he had heard that that you know Jesus' name is it was actually Yeshua, which means the one who saves us, and it's hearkening back to uh, Joshua who led the people of God into the Promised Land, and so we were uh, we were having this fascinating conversation about the Promised Land, and this young guy said, of course the Promised Land is heaven, and he started to go on. I said, oh wait, wait let's let's pause there just for a second. And uh, let's, as a group, explore that a little bit. You just made an assumption, a leap, that that the promised land, in, the, in reference to Jesus, is heaven. But what else could the promised land be? And eventually we, we moved back toward the kingdom of God. That the promised land, of course, can be heaven, but it's also 
what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. How would you describe what the kingdom of God is, TC? I would absolutely say that it is um, the kingdom of God is essentially God's, you know, reign. And so when we look in the Garden of Eden, we would say, okay, the kingdom of God was being fully realized there because there was no sin or sickness or disease or these things. Obviously, the fall of humanity uh, broke that. So when Jesus, from my viewpoint, talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is among you and the kingdom of God is coming, it is essentially things being put back to God's original design, where God's uh, is, is his blessing is, is there, and, and there is nothing to uh, distract or harm. So, uh, absolutely, my, my viewpoint is not that the kingdom of God simply is simply this heaven that's somewhere out there, but rather, uh, my viewpoint is that whatever dimension it is that God exists in, uh, that being fully realized here on earth is the end goal, as we see at the end of the book of Revelation, where you know uh, John sees. Uh, this city, this New Jerusalem, descending down, and God is with his people. So the kingdom of God is wherever God is, and we are certainly inviting his presence into our lives and then through our hands seeking to spread it and be an ambassador of it in our local area to simply bring it more in line with the place where God's presence fully resides. So rather than obviously our goal being getting to heaven, the idea that Jesus brings is that he's He's inviting us to bring heaven into us and to where we are at. So when we think about the title of your book, The Unreasonable Jesus, is it, uh, when, when, and we're talking right now about the kingdom of God, is it, does he seem unreasonable because what is true in the kingdom of God seems so different and odd to us that it's hard to make sense or hard to stomach what he's saying? Is that why Jesus comes off as unreasonable, because the kingdom of God is such a foreign thing to us? Yeah, I would totally agree. Um, to use to use an analogy, uh, many of us, when we were younger in elementary school or after school programs, we probably played a game called the telephone game. Did you ever play this game? Oh yeah, where, like, yeah. The, youth you know, ministry the, the, the game. Yeah, yeah, so there's like, you know, there's a circle of maybe maybe a dozen or 20 people and the teacher will come up with some phrase and the teacher will turn and whisper it into the ear of the person sitting immediately to their right and then that person has to whisper it into the ear of the person to their right and it goes on and on and everybody else is just watching as it goes around and you have one chance to hear and repeat it and the whole point is that um, usually by the time the phrase gets back to the teacher, it's completely different. You know, if the teacher starts with elephants wear roller skates, you know, when the last kid stands up to announce what they heard, it's, you know, something completely different. You know, uh, elephants can dance and, and, you know, see lights or something. You're like, what? You know, how? That's crazy. How did it, how did it turn to that? My, my viewpoint here is that God had given an original purpose and identity to humanity, but... As we repeated it going through time, man, we, we had just messed it up. We had lost it. And, by, and, and before Jesus comes onto the scene, essentially the message wasn't that you're made in the image of God and, and you've been designed to cultivate you know, this world and you've been given purpose to, to kind of create with God. Uh, the message has become, hey, follow God's rules or he's going to get you. And so when Jesus shows up, my thinking is that's essentially like the teacher hitting pause and going, no, 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 you've got the message completely wrong. Here's what the message is. And so when he gets up and, and you know, we see it as this 
paradigm shift and this shotgun blast and, and this unreasonable stuff, what he's actually doing is just saying, hang on a minute, you guys have all lost the message. Let me remind you what the message is. The message isn't, um, you know, don't commit adultery. The message is that you should have whole, healthy life. Your relationships should be positive and life-giving, not that you should just stop short of having ruinous, disastrous relationships. So that's When Jesus is being unreasonable there, I think it's only unreasonable because we had completely forgotten what the original message was. That's good. Get what, as long as you're on a roll there, give us a few more examples that stick out to you uh, that mark Jesus as unreasonable, at least in how we experience him. Oh, I, I mean, I think that just within the Sermon on the Mount, I can I can outline. Well, there's more beyond the Sermon on the Mount. But within the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, I think you've got obviously I said do not lust. Uh, you've got don't get angry, which I don't know what the major highway is where you drive, Rick. But on the major <laughs> highway that I drive on every day, like if I only were to call someone an idiot, I would want Jesus to give me a high five and tell me how patient and loving I am. But instead, he says. Your heart's in danger if you're viewing people that way. Um, yeah, he's he's he's, he's 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 not actually he's not really even saying don't get angry. He's saying, well, you, you know, it's not okay. It's it's wrong. It's a sin to murder. But guess what? Whenever you get angry at somebody, that you're guilty of murder. It's like right, right, right. an impossible yeah. standard. Yeah, entirely unreasonable. I mean, and he was just getting rolling. He says, love your enemies, which is, like, hilariously ridiculous if, if, if you don't dig into it. He says, you know, he talks about giving your money to the poor. He talks about gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. He, he tells us not to judge. He, he talks about the, the fact that we have to go through this narrow gate that few are ever going to find. I mean, it's, you know, a, any one of those would be enough to sit down and go, can I, can I really follow this guy? And he's just rolling them off one after the other. Uh, and so it's easy if we just hear it briefly uh, to get to that point where, as you said, look at it as, as a, a field of mud puddles and to just go, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to, to walk through that. Maybe I'll just you know, not look down and pretend that I'm walking on beautiful lilies and daisies or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. So when we think about this string of stuff, and, and I, I love it that you you know that you you said here here's just a snippet of his unreasonableness, and that's just in the Sermon on the Mount. We got a whole new New Testament past that 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 chronicles his this kind of uh, shocking wonder aspect of who he is. So, what is the function of this? Why why is Jesus so unreasonable in our lives? And I know that he's not unreasonable just because he likes to think of himself as a troublemaker. He, I came to make trouble. His words and behavior uh, in his unreasonableness have a functional purpose. So in your mind, what is that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, Jesus is not a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass saying, <laughs> you, guys, you guys can barely follow these rules. Wait till you see you know, what I've got in store for you, know, for you now. Like, my daughter and I just watched Batman on Netflix the other day, you know, like, you know, wait till they get a load of me, you know, that's definitely not where he's coming at. He is, um, he is pointing us, like I said, back to the original message, but he also wants us to realize something, that this is not about us doing stuff for God, impressing God, following rules really well so that God is pleased with it. He really wants to point us to the fact that we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. These standards are impossible in 
our own strength. And so he wants us to realize that. And, uh, you know, Andy Stanley in The Next Generation Leader talks about the fact that people will forgive a leader for being wrong, but they won't forgive a leader for failing to communicate their expectations because if a leader then tries to keep someone accountable for something they never told them they need to do, people will say, forget it, I'm out. Well, Jesus is not a bad leader. Jesus is a great leader, and he wants people to know, listen, here's, here's the goal, here's the standard, here's, here's the kingdom of God, here's the life I'm offering, and you're going to need the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us at the end of our life going, well, I, I could never have known that, Jesus. You never told me that. He wants us to know right up front, you're going to need the Holy Spirit in your life in order to make this possible. And I think that when we hear these quote-unquote unreasonable standards that he gives us, very quickly we're going to figure out, am I interested in following Jesus, or do I just want him to follow me around and bless the stuff that I've decided I'm okay with doing? Yeah, and I, 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 I love that you've kind of brought up the significant and, and uh, irreplaceable role of the Spirit in, in all of this. One of the things that can happen in um, uh, you know, the, the book that you've written, the books that I've written, where, where, where you actually suggest to people, here is a way to live that, that is a translation into our contemporary everyday life from what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And you do that in your book. And I, I, I think what, one thing that's interesting is when we contrast our normal, everyday, conventional life, the kingdom of this world life, to the kingdom of God life, um, and then attempt to bridge this into our everyday life as a result of that. And often what happens in the Church is that we just get loaded down with a bunch of shoulds. All of the pile of shoulds that we're supposed to be doing, it's, it's, I, I sometimes challenge people to s- slow down and listen to what they hear on Sunday morning, and how many shoulds have they heard, and how many are actually possible for them to integrate into their life, and how good are they at doing that? And you quickly kind of grind the gears to a halt there. That, but so often the way that that we try to translate all of this into change and transformation in our life is through the leverage of should, and and we're not very good at that. So, when in your own life, how have these truths of Jesus become like everyday habits for you? And I, I want to just point out a, a story that you tell early in the book. You're, you're running, I think, through a park, and you see a tent where a bunch of people are gathered, and it's some kind of pagan gathering festival thing, and you stop to—because you, you're curious about what they're doing there, and you try to talk to a few people, and they don't really want to talk to you, and eventually you end up talking to the leader, and you have this conversation about what pagans believe, and you're able to interact with them, and then you go on your way, and you think, well, that that's great that you could do that, TC, but— I don't think if I was running past a tent that said Pagan Festival on it, I'd stop and talk to them. So when we think about translating some of these things that Jesus has talked about relative to the Kingdom of God, and then we want those things to be lived out in our everyday life in a normal way, how does that translation happen? Is it just because, well, TC's wired to stop and talk to pagans and I'm not? How, how do these things actually infiltrate into our lives and change our lives? Yeah, definitely, definitely not. I I know you know I, I'm I'm okay here you know having a conversation, but I'm I'm actually an introvert, and I I have I'm fine with just doing my own thing, going for a run, kind of tunnel vision, looking. 
Um, but when I when I came upon that group, like I, I'm not I'm not this guy who every time I see a group, I'm like I'm just going to run over and make eight new friends. Like that, that's definitely not who I am. I'm, I'm especially when I'm out running. You know, I, I hate running. I don't want to get in shape. I do it because it's good for me. Um, but I'm running, and, and I saw that, and I I had just been in the process of Jesus transforming me into loving people and, you know, being interruptible and learning to value the things that he tells me to value. And Rick, I, I really think that's the main point here is that if I'm not being transformed into someone that's more like Jesus, then I have to ask myself, you know, what what am I doing? Am I just, as you said, putting a bunch of shoulds into my life? Like, I, I should be becoming an emotionally healthier person, a relationally healthier person, because that's, that's why Jesus says he came in, in John 10.10, 10, the end result. He said, you know, he came to preach the kingdom of God, and the end result is that we would have a life and a life more abundantly, so a, a healthier, wholer, fuller life than we would have without him. And as far as, you know, I'm with you, if these things don't become at some level practical, if they don't show up in our actions, it, it's hard for me to say that I am being transformed. And if I'm not being transformed, then honestly, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. So uh, one you, of my favorite quotes, sorry, sorry. You, you were sharing one of your favorite quotes. I'm going to share with you one yeah, of my go. favorite quotes. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said, Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is the practical realist. Hmm. And I agree with him. If I, if I am not being transformed in my actions, uh, because internally I'm transformed, it should change me externally, if that's not happening, then at this point I think I'm missing out on the reason Jesus wanted to go around preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. Yeah, so uh, sorry for interrupting you there, but uh, what I'm curious about here in the midst of this is what is the what are the mechanics of that uh, translation into our everyday life? How does that, like a, a, it, we're talking here about the transmission in a car. So there's an engine, which is our uh, deep and growing intimacy with Jesus, and then there's the wheels, which maybe represent how we move forward in life. What is the transmission between those two things that that takes the power of the engine and transfers it into our everyday life? In your own life, how, when you kind of slow down and think about how this has actually happened in your own life, how has it actually happened? For me, so I don't know if I can universalize this or not for everyone else, but I, I can, you know, you asked me about me, so I can speak yeah. to me. For yeah. me... It's very simply that I'm a, as an introvert, I'm a fairly introspective person. And um, when I, you know, when I've made the choice to follow Jesus and I invited him into my life, I discovered very quickly that the Holy Spirit, one of the main ways the Holy Spirit talks with me and guides me, is that when I get ready to be introspective, I feel like the Holy Spirit grabs my hand and says, okay, let, let's get in here. Let, let's take a look at what's going on. And, and he helps me kind of take a look at what's going on within me. Now, when I read things that Jesus challenges me to do, like loving my enemies, for instance, you know, I, as you mentioned in my book, I talk about an unexpected job transition. That, that came from having, you know, a, a boss who is not, you know, the world's best boss. And um, I had to I had to learn you know to forgive this guy and so I, I can't just do that but I need the Holy Spirit to help me but for me what happens is that when I'm in that moment saying okay I don't exactly love this guy uh, you know in, in this situation but I know that Jesus tells me to love my enemies 
so, I, I, something is going to have to happen here. So for me, the mechanic of taking the words of Jesus saying, love your enemies, is my knowing that if I don't engage with the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit transform me and lead me to a place of learning to love someone that, frankly, I'd rather not put the energy into loving, that my faith has become disingenuous, that I'm no longer following Jesus, and I'm trying to get him to follow me. And the way I'm wired, Rick, is I... I, I don't want to live a faith that's inconsistent. I don't want to pick and choose because then I know Jesus is not in charge. I'm in charge. So I, I have to I have to um, draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to transform me in those moments. Otherwise, I, I'm, I'm just not going to be okay with where I'm at and who I am. So I, I don't know if that's something that will convert or be helpful in anybody else's life, but I just can't live a life that is fraudulent or hypocritical to that level, knowing it. Uh, an author I like a lot, her name is Nadia Bolz Weber. Um, your listeners may or may not enjoy her. She uses a fair bit of language, but she's a, a Lutheran pastor. She, she gets asked regularly, how do you get closer to Jesus? And her tongue-in-cheek response is to say, um, I get closer to Jesus, I, I'm, I'm trying to get away from him, but he keeps running me down and making me be a healthier person. And I hear that, and I, and I laugh, because I feel the same way. Like, I just want to be this introvert, I, I kind of want to just, you know, take care of my own situation, my own deal, and Jesus keeps telling me, that's not the abundant life, that's not the whole healthy life I've called you to. Part of it is being healthy relationally and emotionally and spiritually, and that means you have to be connected with this world. So, I mean, Rick, just for me, it's... I don't want to say it's a fear of um, of not being a, a genuine believer, but it's it's knowing that if I don't do that, I, I'm going to miss out on what Jesus promises on the back end of all these unreasonable things he says. Yeah, and you used a phrase just now that I think is worth pausing to, to take a closer look at, uh, and, it's, and it's actually it's fantastic that you're an introvert because... Introverts chew on things. They they mull things, and and they they're in touch with the uh, the conversation that's going on inside of them. And so, when you say the phrase "draw on the power of the Holy Spirit," what does that? Uh, if you had to explain to somebody, because it's kind of we we hear that, and if you've been following Jesus for a while and living a dependent life with Him, you kind of uh, draw draw on the power of the Holy Spirit is kind of shorthand for something that happens inside of us. But we don't often slow down and pay attention to what that actually is. What does it actually mean for somebody to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit? Like, if you had to explain that to, to a middle schooler, what would you say about what is happening in you when you're doing that? So, for me, frequently this happens when I realize I've been trying to do it myself, and I'm, I'm not doing a very good job of it, it being you know, living, living a Jesus-centered life um, and, and loving my enemies and, and uh, choosing, you know, not rather than to be angry, but to, to, to have, you know, grace and, and these things and, and, you know, choosing healthy relationships over lust and all those things. Usually it comes to the point where I realize I'm not good at it, and maybe I've been trying to do it on my own recently. Uh, and so what I generally do is I need to go for a late-night walk. The later, the better. I, like Anything earlier than 10 probably is no good. I've done this at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. I go out in my neighborhood, and I look at the stars, and I say, God, you know, I'm trying to do this on my own. It's not working. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I, I can't do this. And without your power, 
it's not going to happen. You, you would use the example of, a, of an engine. I like to use the example of a toaster. When you bring a toaster home from the store, if you stick bread in it and push the paddle down, nothing's going to happen because it's not plugged in. You've got to plug it in, and then it can fulfill its purpose. It's designed to toast bread, but it can't do it without that power. For me, if I don't, if I don't invite the Holy Spirit into my life and intentionally listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying, then I can't fulfill my purpose. But when I invite the Holy Spirit into my life and I listen to the Holy Spirit and I ask the Holy Spirit to help me, that's when I'm able to actually do those things. But it's, it's, it's you know, a toaster isn't like a car where you fill it with gas and it can go for a long time. You unplug that toaster and it stops making toast. So uh, for me, it is it is a constant communion, a constant connection, a constant looking to a constant reliance a constant source of hope that this is possible and without those things um i'm not a very good toaster rick yeah that's good i I like that you know a couple of thoughts popped up for me as you're as you're talking about this we talk about the spirit um the spirit goes by many names the holy spirit the advocate the counselor he's essentially the spirit of jesus is is how the spirit is referred to and it's interesting is in john 14 15 16 17 in that arena jesus is starting to introduce to his disciples to his best friends the reality that's about to happen he's going to go away and he's kind of excited about it on one level because he knows what's going to come when he leaves and that is the Spirit. And the, he's talking to people who have no idea what he's talking about, and they can't imagine any good thing coming out of him going away. But Jesus knows the Spirit is coming, and the way he, I, I love how Jesus frames what the Spirit's job description is going to be. In John 14, he basically says, well, the Spirit's going to come and help you understand everything I've ever taught, and he's going to guide you in a moment-to-moment way. It, the thing that I can't do right now, because I'm a human, a human being with flesh and blood, I can't get inside of you. The Spirit will get inside of you and help you understand all the stuff you don't understand right now. And I'm so excited about it that because you guys have had a really hard time understanding me. So you can see his obvious excitement that the Spirit is coming, because he knows to be able to teach us from the inside out is going to be so much better than what, in fact, we have it so much better than those disciples who were actually with Jesus because we have him in us, teaching us from the inside out. And so I, I, I love what you're saying here about giving way to the Spirit. And the, the second thought I had coming out of what you were saying is um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, for me, what does this feel like for me to draw on the strength and the guidance of the Spirit? And it's, it's like a you know, we move through life wobbly. It's like we, uh, when we're walking through our life, we're in a permanent earthquake. There are so many things on an everyday basis that just throw us off. We lose our balance. We don't. We're we're constantly searching for sources of stability and strength in our life, and it could be money and uh, success and achievement, all kinds of things. We're looking around to help to help us to keep from feeling so wobbly. And so, for me, it feels like. The, the dependence on the Spirit is, is like, instead of leaning against a wall or leaning on something that has some sort of false solidity to it, that I lean inside on the Spirit. I, I actually picture myself sort of physically leaning into the Spirit instead of towards something else or away from Him. So um, 
that that sense that uh, that you're describing, TC, of this dependence and almost a kind of a preference uh, over yourself. Instead, you're preferring to lean on the Spirit for the strength and ability to to do the unreasonable things that Jesus has asked us to do. So anyway, I, I resonate with what you're what you're talking about there. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is I, I was just thinking about this as as I was reading your book. So you've spent you know months and months writing your book. I know writing a book is a really long process where it 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 plunges you into marinating in in this world, and it's a gift to other people um, when you have spent time marinating to to come out of that marination and say, "Here's what I've seen." Here's what I've experienced. So you marinated in the Sermon on the Mount and in the presence of Jesus, by extension. So how did your taste of Jesus change over time as you spent all this time marinating in, in this Sermon on the Mount epic season? You know, I, f- I think that for me, with, with this book, a, a lot of it is coming out of some major transformation Jesus did in me. I, I was right at the end of uh, seminary, and uh, I, I came to the realization that I had basically become a really good Pharisee, that I, I kind of had this idea that um, I, I understood God more than other people did, and like other people just really didn't get it, and I, I'm the one that I, I really got God. Quite frankly, God pretty much needed me you know, to, to talk about him and to educate people about him. And uh, I'm very grateful that the Holy Spirit uh, was willing to show up in my life with a wrecking ball one day. And, um, you know, my, my uh, whole structure I had built on, you know, being so, so smart uh, about God, he just kind of knocked all of that down. And it, it brought me to a place of kind of fresh humility, uh, and I started actually listening to Jesus, and, and kind of the whole phrase I use there of, I started following Jesus instead of just having Jesus follow me and, you know, hey, bless all the stuff that I'm, that I'm doing and, you know, get me out of speeding tickets and make sure I pass tests and all those things. And out of, out of that process, that's when I really started saying, okay, if I'm going to follow Jesus instead of vice versa, what are, what are the things he's saying to me? And I started reading the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount from that standpoint. That's, that's really when it was very transformative for me uh, that, uh, you know, Christianity is not just believing the right things, but it's, it's about becoming the person God has made me to be. So I, I really had, I really had minimalized it to an intellectual exercise, which as an introvert, you know, is, is stimulating to me. Uh, but having that go to a place of true transformation, that's really just where I came out of it. So I, I've, come, I've come to a place where um, I, I much more understand what Jesus is calling me to, and I'm much more intimidated by it, uh, and I'm much more grateful that, as you said, um, he, he gave us the message, and then afterwards he said, now listen, you know, there's going to be the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, Helper is going to come, and he's going to remind you of everything I said, and he's going to also empower you to be able to live these things out. Yes, so, uh-huh. honestly, th- this whole process, uh, Rick, has just led me to a place of gratitude that Jesus is willing to work with somebody like me, someone as, you know, uh, self-absorbed and, and arrogant sometimes, and, and, and willing just to say, no, no, you're my son, and I'm going to keep working with you, when I would have long ago said, 
man, you're, you're out. That's, that's not even three strikes. That's 15 strikes. You, you're done. Um, if I was God, I wouldn't trust me with God's socks. And yet God says, um, you know, fear not, little flock, I've given you the kingdom. Uh, and knowing that I'm part of God's plan A for um, advancing his kingdom in this world today and that he doesn't have a plan B. Uh, it's intimidating, it's inspiring, and I'm just deeply grateful that he'd be willing to work with someone like me. Mm, that's good. And, you know, we're in a we're in a uh, arc of episodes here where we're leaning into what you might call the, the basics of a life of following Jesus, and it's under the wider umbrella of what what kind of grit does it take on an everyday basis to be a follower of Jesus, and where does that grit come from? And that's really what we're talking about right now. It's We have our little widow's mite that we throw into the pot, or our little mustard seed that we bury in the ground, or a little bit of yeast that we put in the loaf of bread, and in the kingdom of God, those little things become huge things. And uh, so as we uh, throw in our little widow's mite of grit uh, and and lean into him, he expands that with his own strength to to follow him into all the unreasonable paths he takes us to. And and last the, our last episode was uh, really exploring how to read the Bible in a more uh, re- relational, conversational, active, everyday living sort of way. And I think what you're what you've done here, with the Sermon on the Mount is put that filter on it. What, what would it look like to live this, not just read it? And so uh, I want to throw out a few, a few things, a few ideas that, that, that surface for me about how to kind of change the way we read Jesus so that it translates into uh, an everyday way of living. Um, these are not shoulds. These are just things to think about uh, when we consider how we read Jesus and how we're slowing down. So, And uh, along the way here, TC, I'm going to ask you if something sparks in you as I'm, as I'm going through a few of these things uh, to please throw in what your best ad- advice would be as well. So the first one is, don't sugarcoat the upset-the-apple-cart nature of Jesus and how that impacts the way we live. S- so often we encounter the Jesus of the Bible in ways we don't expect, because we've believed sort of the common myths about who he is. Like, I know the the most popular way to describe Jesus for most Americans is that he's a really nice person. Well, they haven't really slowed down to actually encounter the Jesus described in the Bible, because it would be you'd be hard-pressed to describe that guy as Mr. Rogers. He's, he's wholly different than that. And uh, I think one of the keys to really having a close, passionate, intimate relationship with him is to encounter him the way he really is, uh, not the way we wish he was or the way that we think he is. But uh, when you come across his, his unreasonableness, it's in those very places that if you slow down and try to encounter him, try to understand and taste what it would be like to encounter a Jesus like that, if you were in the shoes of the people who are hearing him or watching him, what would that be like to, to slow down and encounter Jesus that way is the pathway into greater intimacy with him. So, so don't sugarcoat Jesus. Even when, you, when you, your honest response to something he says or does is, wow, that was really hard, let yourself go there into, wow, that was really hard. And then ask yourself the question, why? Why would Jesus do something so hard? Why is the key to everything when it comes to the heart of Jesus? Second thing is, 
as T.C. has pointed out in his book, uh, Jesus is provoking us in some ways. He's, he's challenging us, and we don't want to skip over the challenge. T.C., I loved what you just said about uh, being led by the Spirit, and that part of that is that uh, instead of just sort of reading these things rhetorically, you read the things Jesus says in an attitude of, what would it look like if I lived that right now? And, and how helpless will I feel? And how soon? As soon as I start thinking that way, it kind of drives you to a dependence on the Spirit when you think that way. So a couple other things. Uh, TC's pointed this out, too, in, his, in, your, in, in how you're describing this life, that we're really called to live a deeper and more fulfilling life in the end. That's the, uh, that's, that's the real truth behind all of this, that Jesus is calling us to live a much more fulfilling life than we know how to live, or that we know how to ask for. And as we've pointed out toward the end here, the transmission of that into our everyday life is to first encounter Jesus in, in holy who He is and what He's saying, and then say to ourselves, I want to live that way. And we quickly get to a place of dependence on the Spirit, then we've got to have his insight, his guidance, and his power to live that way in an everyday way. So all of this really is a, is a form. I mean, the title of the podcast is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and all of this is a way of paying ridiculous attention to Jesus when you simply slow down and take as a, a real possibility in your everyday life the unreasonable things he's talking about. So, uh, TC, what, what would you say, what would you leave the folks listening to this with, as far as a jumping-off point uh, for them uh, translating the, the, what they're encountering in Jesus into something that matters in their everyday life? You know, uh, and I think you said it well. I think I would just reinforce that when I read something that at first blush or maybe at the tenth read seems unreasonable, one of the things I need to remind myself is that Jesus loves me, Jesus is for me, and Jesus wants what's best for me. He came that I would have abundant life, meaning the healthiest, fullest life emotionally, relationally, spiritually, that I could possibly have, so that if I ignore the parts of Jesus that I don't understand or I don't like, then I'm going to miss out on what Jesus is offering me, and I'm going to get something lesser than that. So uh, never, <laughs> never, never ignore Jesus because you think it'll lead to something better. That's just not simply how it works. That's great. So gang, the, the book's name is The Unreasonable Jesus. It comes out March 6th, just around the corner here. Author's name is Thomas Christensen. We've been calling him TC throughout, but just so you remember that name, it's Thomas Christensen, and the book is, again, The Unreasonable Jesus. We'll have a link to his book uh, on our podcast page here, and you can also order it directly from us at group.com. Just go there and plug in the title, and it'll take you right to it. So, gang, thanks for listening today. Uh, thank you, TC, for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, and gang, remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail, as I just mentioned, on our, on our website, painridiculousjesus.com. For this podcast, just find our podcast, Season 3, Episode 10. And uh, again, don't forget, Unreasonable Jesus releasing on March 6th. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.